As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Most Notorious, the tragic story of the Radium Girls. To explain what, what who the Radium Girls were, they were women employed to paint dials, watches, clocks, aeronautical dials with this glow-in-the-dark radium paint. And they were told by their employers that the most efficient way to do this very delicate handiwork was to lip point, which is a technique whereby the women put their paintbrushes laden with radioactive radium paint between their lips to make that fine point. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Great to have you here. A quick reminder, if you want to listen to episodes ad-free, become a patron at patreon.com slash mostnotorious. Look forward to seeing you there. All right, on to the show. I am so happy to have Kate Moore with me. She is a prolific author, writing in multiple genres, from biography to history to humor, Before becoming a full-time author, she was an editorial director at Penguin Random House UK. The book she's here to talk about, you may have heard of it. It is called Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women. It was a New York Times, USA Today, Wall Street Journal, and Amazon Charts bestseller. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. How did you first learn about the existence of Radium Girls, and and what motivated you to write a book about them? It was the most serendipitous journey, I think, that you can imagine. Um, I didn't know about the Radium Girls. I was not looking to sort of stumble on a history topic or anything like that. Um, I, you know, have never written a history book before this one, so it was entirely new. How I actually came to the story was um, through one of my other passions, theatre, um, I had just made my directorial debut directing a production of Lorca's Blood Wedding in the spring of 2014 and had adored the process so much that I really wanted to direct again. So I googled great plays for women, just looking for a script that would allow me to put women centre stage and give actresses great opportunities. And a play that came back on that random Google search was called The Shining Lives by Melanie Marnich. 
and it tells the story of the Ottawa dial painters who I write about in the book. And the moment I discovered the play, I fell in love with these women. Uh, I knew the play was based on a real story. And so because I wanted my theatre production to be authentic, I read everything that I could find on the girls. And I was just astonished because there were books on their incredible legal legacy and the scientific legacy that they gifted to the world through their sacrifice. But there was no book that actually focused on the radium girls themselves, on Grace Fryer and Catherine Dunahue. And I thought it was really wrong that there was no book that celebrated them and mourned their tragic lives and, you know, just commemorated their achievements and their sacrifice. And so I became determined that they deserve to have that book. And it seemed to be that as no one else had done it, I kind of thought, well, I why don't I do it? Um, and so that's how the book came to be. Very interesting. It is. So before we get into the tragic stories that you have so meticulously researched and written about in your book, I'd like to ask you about radium. Could you tell us when it was first discovered and what it was originally used for? Absolutely. So it was discovered in December 1898 by the Puries, and it was immediately seized upon as a remarkable substance. And partly that was because of its immense radioactivity. Um, it's a hugely powerful substance and it has a half-life, this particular isotope of radium that I write about in the book, Radium-226. It has a half-life of 1,600 years, which means it doesn't diminish in its power for all those centuries. And that immediately was something that people were fascinated by. Um, you know, people wrote about it being like a, a mythological super being. Um, you know, they were just struck by this extraordinarily, extraordinarily powerful glowing. It was a glow in the dark substance. Um, and the history of radium is that very quickly it was discovered that it was actually dangerous for humans. So my book actually opens with a prologue dated 1901 in which a scientist receives a radiation burn from radium. So they knew from the turn of the century that radium was dangerous. It destroyed human tissue. But very quickly, it was used for medicinal purposes. So it was used to treat cancerous tumours. And of course, this powerful substance was indiscriminate in its powers. So it would destroy cancerous tumours. And that made it obviously a, a life saving element and actually we still use it even today to treat cancers a different isotope i should say with a much much shorter half-life but it is still remarkably effective in that way and the history of radium is that entrepreneurs looked at those results they saw that it was this life-saving health-giving as they assumed substance and very quickly moved to exploit it um, and so you had all these products springing up, many of them based in the health markets. So if you went into your local drugstore in 1910, in 1920, you could buy a radioactive pill or a radioactive dressing. And it was used to treat things like hay fever or gout or impotence. People bought radium jockstraps and lingerie to boost their sex lives. It was put into butter and milk and chocolate. And there was even a range of radium cosmetics that would 
you know, with this glow in the dark substance, they sold face creams and soaps to give you a glowing complexion. And at the time the book opens, uh, chapter one starts in 1917 with a radium girl called Catherine Sharp going to work. By that time, it was seen as this glamorous and health-giving substance known as the wonder element. And so the radium girls thought they were incredibly lucky to be working with this seemingly miraculous substance. There was such a, a gap between the public's perception of radium and its health benefits and scientists' very early understanding of its poisonous effects. Were there any of these scientists uh, trying to explain to those who were so casually consuming it how dangerous it really was? What I found quite interesting is, I in I mean, my, fo- my research, I should specifically say, focused very specifically on the radium girls. But in what I read, I found very few examples of scientists trying to educate the public about it. There were, of course, scientific studies and scientific facts because scientists actually had died from working with radium. And one of the most shocking things to me about the story is that the radium companies where the radium girls were employed, they employed the radium girls who were dial painters. So to explain what what, who the radium girls were, they were women employed to paint dials, watches, clocks, aeronautical dials with this glow-in-the-dark radium paint. And they were told by their employers that the most efficient way to do this very delicate handiwork was to lip point, which is a technique whereby the women put their paintbrushes laden with radioactive radium paint between their lips to make that fine point. And so you've got women being told that it's safe to swallow radium, and they're sitting, you know, merrily painting away in their dial painting studios, swallowing the radium. And literally next door in the laboratories on the exact same site in New Jersey, for example, um, the lab workers who were largely male were actually issued with protective equipment such as lead aprons and ivory tipped tongs. And that is because scientists and the companies did know that radium was dangerous. You know, that was you know, no one could argue with that fact because people had died from being exposed to radium. But the the issue was that they knew a large amount was dangerous. So that's what the lab workers were handling, whereas the radium girls were only dealing with a minuscule amount of radium. And so that is what was put into the butter and the milk and the chocolate and the vitamin tablets and all of that sort of thing. So people thought a small amount was safe. A large amount would kill you. Um, but as ever with these things, if you actually dig down into why people thought that and why, as you say, scientists, you know, were not all over the newspapers sort of, you know, up in arms about these things. There was research conducted that they thought showed that a small amount was safe and beneficial to health. But actually, it was the radium firms who were making money from all these products who were funding that research. And that research was then published in journals that the radium companies founded and published. And they were then decimating that information to doctors, um, to medics, to hospitals, to newspapers and magazines. And that was therefore the received wisdom based on this scientific research that was funded by the firms. That's why they thought a small amount was safe. 
I mean, it's the age-old story, isn't it? It happened with cigarette companies. It's Mm -hmm. happening with drug manufacturing companies now. Completely. And I found that so striking when I was researching the book because, you know, the the story that I write about in the book, you know, starts in 1917 and, and goes all the way through to the 1930s. And so I was, you know, reading stories about the girls in the newspapers and there would be adverts to cigarettes. You know, a cigarette a day keeps the doctor away. And you just couldn't help but see the parallels there. Yeah. So what qualifications were these companies looking for in in hiring for these positions? Uh, What was an ideal candidate? Well, funnily enough, they tended to look for very young girls. Um, Some people actually said that because the work was so delicate, you know, we're talking about for example, a number on a watch face, if you think about your own watch today, um, it's about a millimetre in width to try and get that number, you know, that they needed to paint over with the radium paint. Um, and I did read in the, in the you know, the, the files that I found, sometimes they liked uh, sort of teenage girls, prepubescent girls to do that handiwork. So many of the women I write about in the book um, are teenagers when they're working there. So Catherine Sharp. Uh, is 14 years old when she goes to work for the first time. Actually, records show that some of them were as young as 11. Um, so they were very young women. They tended to come from working class backgrounds, many of them daughters or granddaughters of immigrants. And they felt they were so blessed to get this job. That is one of the tragedies of the story, not only because they got to work with this wonder element of radium, which was health giving, as they thought, which was glamorous. You know, it glowed in the dark. Um, Catherine Dunahue, one of the key radium girls I write about who worked in Ottawa in Illinois, she said she and her friends used to wear their good dresses to the plant because they would get covered in this glowing dust, um, this radium dust while they were at work in the studio. And then when they went out to the speakeasies after work, the radium girls were these these stunning women glowing with this phosphorescence, the glow of the radium on the dance floor with their frocks all all covered with it. Um, So the women thought they were so lucky to work there. And again, one of the tragedies of the story is that because they felt so blessed, they encouraged their sisters and cousins and friends to join them in the studio. So when what happens to the radium girls then happens, it's not just one daughter in a family who's affected but sometimes two or three or even four, um, which was just horrifically tragic. But they felt they were lucky. It was glamorous. It was health giving. It was incredibly well paid. The Radium Girls were in the top 5% of female wage earners nationally. And it was artistic. And all these things combined made the women feel so blessed to get the job. These were men very aware of the dangers posed to these young women, but still encouraged them to lick their brushes. I mean, they were expendable to them, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and that becomes crystal clear as the story develops, you know, as um, understandably, because these women have been swallowing radium, you know, they get sick. Some of them start dying. They suffer crippling illnesses and injuries. And yet, even though it, the truth is now coming out, the companies refuse to admit responsibility, even when the link is absolutely made clear. As you say, they consider the workers expendable. It's far more important that they cover up this scandal, you know, just as happened with the cigarette companies as well. You know, the whistleblowers 
um, are shot down. These radium girls were discredited. Everything the companies could do in their power to silence them, they did because they didn't want all those lucrative industries and products to come crashing down. They prioritized the profits over the people and they absolutely thought the workers were expendable. You know, that's why they tried so very hard to cover this up and to reassure the workers as well. You know, even when some women start getting hurt, they're telling the other girls, oh no, don't listen to them. They're liars, they're frauds, they're trying to pass something off on the company, you know, you're safe, you, you don't need to worry. We always put the health of our employees first. You know, these are the kind of phrases that the companies are using. You know, one company took out a full page advert in the local paper to say that the health of their employees was always foremost in the minds of company officials, um, even as they know that radium is killing their workers. <sighs> So how did radium poisoning manifest itself physically? I know that not every woman experienced the same symptoms. No. But what were the commonalities? You're right. You know, every woman was affected in a different way, but there were consistent patterns that began to emerge. But part of the problem the women had is that the type of radiation poisoning they were suffering was of a type never seen in human beings before them. And so it was this sort of medical mystery to try and unravel what was happening to them. Um, and the other problem that they had is radium poisoning is incredibly insidious. It takes years to show itself. So all those wartime dial painters that I talked about who included Grace Fryer and Catherine Sharp in New Jersey, they actually didn't start to get sick till about four or five years after they had left the studio. You know, the war was long over grace had gone off to work in a bank catherine was doing office work and when they start to get sick they're not even working in the studio anymore but how the radium girl started to get sick was to begin with incredibly innocent seeming it would just be a sore tooth uh, or an aching limb you know just a painful arm or leg that would just you know just sort of niggle at you it would just ache but then things began to get more serious so Catherine Sharp, for example, went to the dentist to have her sore tooth pulled. But then what happened is the infection she had in her mouth did not clear up. The next tooth started to hurt and then the next tooth and the next until Catherine didn't have to go to the dentist anymore because those teeth just fell out on their own. And Grace Fryer found that she had an aching foot and an aching back. And when they actually did x-rays on her, they found that the bones inside her body had been crushed by some force. And it was the force of the radium inside her. Because what happened when the girls swallowed the radioactive paint is that the radium then sought out their bones. That's what it's chemically programmed to do. It's biomedically very similar to calcium. And we know that we're supposed to drink glasses of milk because the calcium makes our bones strong. That's where the calcium goes is into our skeletons and radium acts in an identical way. But of course, once it's there, it's not making your bones strong. As Grace Fryer found, it crushes your vertebrae. It crushes your femur. It crushes your arms. So the women found their arms and legs would spontaneously fracture. And some women found that their legs began to shorten 
So they would end up with one leg four inches shorter than the other. And it was because the radium inside them was essentially destroying them from the inside out. And the pain, you can imagine, you've got something that is literally drilling holes in your bones while you are still alive. That is what the radium girls went through. But because of this medical mystery and because of this sort of program to try and discredit them, when they went to their doctors, the doctors literally did not have a clue what was happening. And they sent them home with aspirin when they're in the most incredible pain that you can imagine. And for me, what is remarkable about them is they were suffering in these horrific, horrific ways, these agonizing ways. And yet they didn't just curl up in a ball and give up. They chose to rise up as a sisterhood and fight for justice, because even if the doctors couldn't join the dots together, as I mentioned earlier, many of the radium girls working in the studios had been friends first. They were friends before they were colleagues. They were sisters. They were cousins. And so these women talked among themselves about all these ailments they were suffering. And it was they who said, as Catherine Sharp put it, they realised that there was something going on about this thing. And they joined the dots. So, yeah, a very powerful moment, of course, when they organised together. Organising against big companies is difficult when you're healthy. But when you're sick and suffering from all these horrific symptoms, it's it's far, far harder. Yeah. Can you talk about their journey and how they organized themselves and what steps they took towards justice? Yeah. Uh, well, obviously, the first thing was to try to even gain recognition for what was happening to them, because there were these powerful company interests that were trying to you know, make sure that no connection was ever found. So their first battle was even trying, you know, to get someone in authority, particularly a medical expert, to pay attention. And one of the most shocking things for me about the story is that even though dozens of young women had died, all of whom had worked at the radium plant, there actually wasn't an autopsy conducted until the first male employee of the radium firm died. It was a man who was the first one to be autopsied and a medical specialist, Dr. Harrison Martland, who was the chief medical examiner in New Jersey. He did an autopsy on Dr. Lehman and realised that this man had died from radium poisoning. Only then did they start testing the radium girls to find out if the same poisoning was afflicting them. So step one in this battle was even getting someone to pay attention, you know, to fight for, you know, to even be able to have the right tests uh, to be able to, to, to determine what was happening. And then, of course, you know, it's one thing to get a doctor to pay attention, but they then needed a lawyer to try and take on this fight for justice for them. And so many lawyers turned them down because the companies, again, would be putting out misleading literature uh, hiring private detectives to dig up dirt on the women um, because the received wisdom of the age was that radium was safe. You know, of course, if you can go into your local drugstore and happily buy it, you know, how on earth can it be that these poor working class women have somehow, you know, realized the scientific truth that actually these these you know substances are dangerous? 
um, there was a sort of disconnect there that was all too easy uh, to make those in authority disbelieve the women. And so for me, one of the most extraordinary radium girls that I write about is Grace Fryer. And that's because lawyer after lawyer after lawyer turned down their case, partly because they didn't believe them, partly because the company that they would have to sue was so incredibly powerful. You know, the radium firms supplied radium to government, uh, to the Navy, to the army. Uh, they had very powerful contacts. They were extraordinarily wealthy. So they had the money to eke out the fight for as long as it took. Um, and so many lawyers just turned them down. They said the statute of limitations, for example, uh, denied the women the right to sue because many compensation laws, if they even existed at that time, and there were limitations even then on who could sue, you know, what injuries you could sue for. Many of them had a two year statute attached which meant that the radium girls who didn't start getting sick until four or five years after they'd left the employment of the radium companies, it left them unable to sue, according to many of these lawyers. But Grace Fryer refused to take no for an answer, and she just kept on and kept on and kept on until she found a brilliant young lawyer, Raymond Berry, um, who was under 30 at the time he took on her case, and he came up with a brilliant interpretation of that statute of limitations. And he was determined, just as Grace was, to try and hold the companies to account and to fight for justice for these girls. Um, so there was an extraordinary number of hurdles that the women had to surmount, you know, battling against these powerful interests who had so much power at their fingertips to try and silence the girls. And yet they still you know, manage to keep on fighting. And I have so many readers contact me uh, to say how inspirational they found that battle because we still see the same thing again and again today, how hard it is to take on powerful companies or governments or whoever it may be who has made a mistake, who has deliberately, you know, endangered someone. It can be really hard to take them on. And I think the Radium Girls in their patience and perseverance are an example to us all of, of how you can actually achieve it and you can actually you know stand up and rise up and fight against these interests to try and see justice done there are a lot of similarities to the fight that new york city's first responders yes. have faced after 9-11 oh, absolutely yeah the long lead times, um, but as you say, the fact that there were so many of them uh, suffering from these, um, you know, cancers and so on, um, and it took a long, long time for people to join the dots. Um, completely shocking, but as you say, the parallels are absolutely there, I agree. The owner of one of these companies, even after knowing that the products he'd manufactured had caused so much pain to his former employees, he was commended during World War II for his contributions to the war effort, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because um, a lot of these radium firms, you know, dealt in atomic energy generally and, you know, uh, radioactive substances. So, yes, Joseph Kelly, who uh, ran the radium firm in Ottawa, in Illinois, um, he was responsible for helping to supply many of the materials they needed for the Manhattan Project. So, yes, he received government commendations um, during the war and never really, you know, as an individual faced justice for what he'd done, even though he'd signed his name 
to that ad- advertisement that I mentioned earlier, you know, telling the women they were safe to continue working at the Radium studio, even when it was clear to everyone, the scientific evidence was clear by that point, that actually the Radium was killing the dial painters. Uh, but he himself never actually, you know, came up against that as, a, as an individual. And now a quick word from our sponsor. All right, back to the show. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Or she, call the police. Or call the police like she should have, exactly. <laughs> What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag... Join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress, Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire, enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, 
every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. I think personally, one of the most powerful things about your book is just your ability to make these women, these victims, so real to readers. Their personalities just leap off the pages. What was that research process like, gathering these intimate details, interviewing family members, getting to know them so well? You must feel a really strong connection to the women you wrote about. I I really do, and I'm really pleased you raised that as a question because, as I mentioned right at the top of this interview, you know, I discovered the story through a play and wrote the book because there was no book that was about the women And so my whole ethos throughout the entire research and writing process was this book is about the women, the individual women. And so you're right. My research was in some ways incredibly narrow in focusing on the sort of two dozen women that I write about in the book. And of course, within that two dozen, there are strong characters, uh, characters who led the fight for justice, who I particularly focus on. Um, so yes, my research was, it kind of had two, well, kind of three prongs to what I would say. So number one was that I wanted to go myself to where they lived so that I could literally walk the streets that they had walked, you know, chart that topography myself, you know, realize how hard it must have been, uh, for two sisters that I write about, Quinta and Albina. You know, I walked the route between their houses and there's a really steep hill. Uh, between them and to think you know how did Quinta manage that uh, with the limp that she had the supposedly arthritic hip um, that she had you know to to know that lay of the land to visit their churches to sort of try and soak up the world that they had lived in and then the second strand was of course to try and find the women's own accounts of what had happened to them and I was so fortunate that they had left those records behind. And again, it, the more I sort of learned about the story and the deeper I delved into the research, the more shocked I was that no one had written a book about them in this way before, because there was just a treasure trove of material. There were court transcripts of the girls on the stand during their fight for justice. There were diaries, there were letters. I found this beautiful tranche of letters that had never been published before between Catherine Dunahue and her her friend Pearl Payne, filled with emotional first person accounts of what it was like to be a radium girl. And no one had ever sort of poured over it and taken it to their heart and, you know, done that before. And I hope when people read the book, um, it is to hear from the girls themselves, because those incredibly strong first person voices are stitched throughout the narrative um you know i also work as a ghostwriter uh, where obviously i sit down with someone i interview them and then i tell their story in the first person and in many ways i feel like the radium girls ghostwriter because i did exactly the same thing it's just rather than sitting down with them on a sofa i had to speak to them through the you know accounts they'd left behind and then use those first person voices in the book. Uh, so in some ways, it was a really similar writing process in, in a way. And then the third prong of the research, as you mentioned, was trying to trace the family members. And I'm so grateful to all the families who helped me with this book because their contribution enriched it beyond measure. Everyone I reached out to wanted to help me. 
which was incredible. They wanted this story to be told. They did feel that their relatives had been forgotten and ignored. And I spoke to sons and daughters and sisters, nieces and nephews, and they were able to tell me all those personal details that the women wouldn't necessarily have talked about in a newspaper interview, for example. They could tell me what their hobbies were, what they liked to cook, what their voices sounded like, what their homes smelt like. And that was just incredible to be gifted that introduction to these heroines and to be able to then weave all those personal details into the book. And you've asked me about a connection to them. I do feel an incredible connection with them. They are my heroines. They're my icons. They're my idols. And I look up to them so much. I find myself inspired by them so much. And because of that connection, it was an incredibly emotional process to write the book. It's an incredibly emotional, heartbreaking story anyway. But, you know, to sit opposite Catherine Dunahue's niece as she closes her eyes and she describes her aunt on her sickbed. And I ask, you know, did Catherine ever cry out from the pain that she was in? And Mary responds and she says, no, she didn't have the energy to scream. All she could do was moan. You know, I cried at the time when I heard it and I still have tears in my eyes now as I'm talking to you because that insight and, you know, that heart and that intimate glimpse of what it was truly like for Catherine to live through this radium poisoning still breaks my heart even today. Yeah, I was definitely struck by the layers of hurt felt by these women. There was the physical pain, of course, uh, watching your own body deteriorate while so young in so many instances. There was the pain of being wronged, um, the injustice of the whole thing. And then watching your family suffer as well. It must have just been overwhelming. Did these women have, have good family support systems to lean on? And I would say in terms of the people that I spoke to and the records that I found, the immediate family of the women were always very supportive. You know, husbands stood beside wives as they gave evidence, you know, fathers championed their daughters. Um, so the immediate family were supportive. They did believe the women. I mean, they obviously were witnessing firsthand this horrific poisoning that they were suffering um, so they absolutely were supportive. But, you know, an, another struggle for the Radium Girls was that, by and large, their communities were not. So the women going shopping, for example, or to church would be shunned by their neighbours. They would be, um, you know, disciplined or re rebuked uh, by their church leaders, by business leaders, by the mayor. Um, you know, the communities were dead set against them uh, fighting for justice. And that was particularly the case in Ottawa, Illinois, uh, partly because by the time those radium girls are filing suit, their, their studio opened a little later. Um, so by the time they're filing suit, it's the middle of the Great Depression. And of course, the audacity of these women uh, to file suit against one of the few companies left uh, who were still bringing work into the community. Um, you know, these women were really uh, attacked 
for what they were doing. And so there was no support there in terms of the wider community. And actually, one of the things I found really shocking in my research was how long that disbelief continued, even after the girls court case, even after the science is demonstrably clear that radium is dangerous, even when ingested in small amounts, you know, um, when it's absolutely crystal clear, I found people being interviewed in the 1970s and 1980s who were still casting doubt on the fact that the women I write about in my book died of radium poisoning. Even though it's been absolutely proven by the science, they were still saying, nah, you know, they were a bit weak to begin with. Um, they always looked like they were half dead. You know, they they didn't, you know, they were just trying to uh, defraud the company, basically. And that was still the opinion of some of their, the people in their communities, even in the 70s and 80s. I'm sure many listeners have seen the movie Aaron Brockovich. Yeah. <laughs> the ending is gratifying, even amidst the tragedy. Was there a satisfying resolution for any of these women um, at the end of the day? I would say yes and no. I think there's a bit of a, 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 I think you can see it both ways. I think there is a triumph to a degree. I think there's certainly a, a moral victory. I would not say there is a financial victory, certainly for the majority of women that were involved. Um, I certainly think there was a moral victory. And I think there is a, a victory as well in terms of what we've learnt from them and I think the Radium Girls would be proud of that legacy. Uh, one of my favourite quotes in the book comes from Grace Fryer, and she's asked when she's filing suit, you know, why are you doing this? And she says, it is not for myself that I care. I'm thinking more of the hundreds of other girls to whom this may serve as an example. And I think the legacy they've left us is as an example of fighting for your rights, which I think they can be very proud of. But there's also a legacy in terms of safety. They literally saved millions of lives because the truth of what had happened inside them gifted the world with scientific knowledge. And that scientific knowledge was used to issue safety standards in all the atomic industries, for example, so that when World War Two happened and there was a new generation of dial painters, there were actually federal safety standards now at last based on the bodies of the radium girls I write about. And that legacy stretched into the Manhattan Project. It stretched into the 1950s with the nuclear arms race. And the scientific studies on the radium girls were actually conducted for decades afterwards, right up until the 1990s. And because of those studies, uh, we learned so much about internal radiation and that in part contributed to the end of that nuclear arms race that I mentioned. Um, the Atomic Test Ban Treaty that was signed in 1963 was partly done because of those scientific studies on the radium girls that proved that even a low level radioactive isotope in the human food chain, in the human body, was dangerous and should be stopped. And so that is quite an extraordinary legacy to leave. And of course, for these individual women, their stories are heartbreaking, their stories are tragic. But I think what's really important to remember is 
the sacrifice was not in vain. And I think all of us actually have a responsibility to try to ensure that that continues to be true, that this sacrifice that they went through was not for nothing. And to try and ensure that history doesn't repeat itself and that we learn the lessons from their story so that other people and other workers do not suffer in the same way. Absolutely. When did the casual use of radium end? Well, that that all came crashing down um, essentially in the sort of mid-1930s. And again, this is, you know, one of the things that still resonates today. The radium girls brought it to public attention that radium was dangerous. But even though, you know, that was then acknowledged that actually the dial painters were dying from these sort of small amounts of radium, it wasn't until... Uh, a rich white man died who was a consumer of some of these radium products. He drank a product called Radithor, which was a or Radiothor, which was a, a radioactive health tonic that you were supposed to take. Um, he consumed several hundred thousand bottles of this highly radioactive tonic. And of course, it killed him. And before he died, he gave evidence to the Federal Trade Commission And because of that, they then stopped the sale of these radium products. Um, But it was only when he died, which was in the early 1930s, that actually the FTC issued cease and desist orders and it became illegal to sell these radium medicines. So that was uh, in the middle of the 1930s that that happened. When the story is talked about in a a casual conversation, the fact usually brought up um, is probably the most sensational one um, that these women glowed because of the radium yes glowed when they were sick glowed when they were dying yeah. uh, glowed while in their coffins could you talk about that how much of that was true well it, it absolutely did happen to them you know often when these things get sensationalized it, it you know it isn't actually true um, but of course radium itself is a luminous substance and what was happening is that as I say the girls were ingesting it and then the radium itself would settle in their bones and I interviewed people nephew for example of Catherine Donahue who said he remembered her lying in a dark room she used to like the shades being drawn on her windows in her sick room but he said there was a light in that room from Catherine herself and he said you could see every bone in her body glowing from the radium and another account as well a first person account of seeing one of the radium girls be exhumed on a dark fall day and they talk about how when they break open the coffin the coffin is a glow from the luminescent compounds is how they put it this first person account because the skeleton that was in that coffin was glowing from the radium and they could see that on this dark full day. Um, so it's absolutely true that the women's bones literally glowed. And it's haunting when you think about Catherine Donahue's comment that she and her friends used to wear their good dresses to the plant because the women adored that glow. They would seek it out so that they could look special on the dance floor. And of course, that glow then remained with them forever. And it still remains with them even now, even while we're talking, while these women are lying in their graves. Were there any family members of the victims that got sick from the radium? 
Yes, there were. It, it wasn't widespread uh, from the research that I looked at. Um, they've never properly done a full study, for example, on the radium girls' children uh, to see how much was passed down. Um, but certainly I discovered there was a case in the records that I found where there was a dial painter and her sister and they shared a bed. The sister never dial painted, uh, but she died of radium poisoning because in sharing a bed with her sister, who would come home from work covered in the dust, and um, she herself ingested radium too. And so she died in the same way because of that close proximity from her sister. You mentioned that there was no real financial compensation uh, for any of these women. There, very, very little. There, there was some financial compensation for, for some of them. Um, but again, you know, how, how do you how do you work out what a woman's life is worth? And, you know, we talked earlier about people being seen to be expendable. And I think some of the settlements uh, that we saw really demonstrate that. I think for me, the most shocking one I read about was actually a dial painter from Connecticut um, because dial painting went on all over America. And I only focus on two states in particular. And I mentioned Connecticut Um and this was the case of a woman called Mildred Cardo. And she had been married just six months when she passed away. And her husband was offered a settlement for his wife's death. But the amount of money that the company gave him was $43.75. Goodness. <laughs> yeah. Cigarette companies uh, have paid out millions in settlements because they are of course still around to do so they've adapted they continue to exist what about these radium companies um are they all gone or were they absorbed into other companies do you know um i think there's a mix to be honest um some companies did fold um others from and i have to say i haven't personally followed the paper trail um this is partly anecdotal from, you know, various family members, but I believe that some other firms uh, were absorbed into other chemical firms, for example. Um, so the radium arm does, you know, no longer exists, uh, but I believe some of them were actually absorbed into other companies. And there were some cases, um, some legal cases in the 1990s, um, because, of course, you know, I mentioned earlier, radium has a half-life of 1,600 years. Um, we're talking about uh, radium dial painting studios that were operating in the middle of neighbourhoods, you know, bang in the middle of Ottawa, Illinois. Uh, you know, I went to the studio, uh, the, the location of the studio in Orange, New Jersey. It's now a children's play park in the middle of residential streets. Um, and of course, the legacy of these radium plants left itself there even when the buildings were knocked down the you know they were raised to the ground and sort of asphalted over the radioactive legacy continued and there were court cases in the 1990s because the environmental protection agency finally started looking into it and i think people forgot about it for decades which just seems crazy now um but they started looking into it and found that actually the levels of radioactivity were massively high and the other thing that had happened is that a lot of the waste from these radium plants you know particularly when they were extracting radium which left a, a kind of um, uh, extraction material that looked like seaside sand that was radioactive that was used in landfill 
uh, across the states. Houses were built on top of it. And so residents did sue once it came to their attention that actually they were living in radioactive houses. They sued companies. And so there were some settlements in the 1990s from these companies that still existed because they'd inherited, uh, you know, the radium firms that I write about in the book, for example. These people that were part of the cover-up, um, complicit in the whole thing, were there ever any accounts that you ran across of any of these executives feeling any sense of remorse, regret for what they had done? I personally did, didn't, no. I mean, I, I would add that, as I say, my focus was always on the women, and so it was their family members I was reaching out to, for example. I didn't reach out to any family members of the executives that I write about in the book. So who, knew, who knows, you know, maybe there were some deathbed confessions, but I doubt it. Your, your book is marvelous, uh, just the way it is. Thank you. But my mind always goes there. I mean, it's hard for me to fathom how one human being can do this to another human being and not feel at least <laughs> a little bad about it afterwards. Yeah, I, I, I totally I totally understand uh, where you're coming from. But certainly uh, from my perspective, um, yeah, they never seem to express um, remorse. And funnily enough, it, it was something that uh, did preoccupy me. And in one of the first drafts of the book that didn't, it didn't sort of stay in. Um, I talk about the demise of one of the radium executives. And in his, you know, in his, the years before he passed away, um, he actually was afflicted with uh, a kind of dementia. But he used to imagine that the people he was talking to were people that he used to work with in the 1920s uh, at the radium firms. Um, but I sort of mused as I was, you know, writing this in the epilogue, uh, that it would seem highly unlikely that the radium girls would be those people that he remembered talking to and that he thought he was talking to because he moved in upper echelons. You know, the dial painters were literally below his interest. Um, so even though in his dementia, he went back and that was the time period and that was the setting that he lived in, um, I doubt the radium girls were part of the community in which he lived in those final years. What about the people who bought these watches? Did they ever have side effects from the radium? Um, not that I've read about. And actually, funnily enough, until a few years ago, and even actually when I, you know, the book was published in 2017 um, in the US. And even when I first went out to promote it, uh, the received wisdom of the age at that time was if you had a radium watch, um, it would be radioactive, but it shouldn't hurt you because um, the most dangerous bit of the radiation is the alpha particles and they would be blocked by the watch's front. And the advice was, you know, don't never open up a radium watch and fiddle about with it because you're releasing, you know, the dangerous elements into the air. And that's really, really dangerous. Um, but actually, in 2018, the University of Northampton did a study on radium watches and they found that even, you know, just a watch on its own is giving off such a dangerous level of radon. Uh, radon, I believe, is the second leading cause of lung cancer in the US. Those radium watches are giving off such a huge amount of radon that actually they're dangerous. Um, and so I believe the advice now is if you have a radium watch, you should get rid of it uh, because it is 
too dangerous because of that invisible radon gas that it will be giving off as the radium decays. Wow. Um, that reminds me of something else. Um, the cases that you focus on were from the United States, but these products were being manufactured in other parts of the world as well. Have you found evidence that, that workers in other countries besides America got sick painting dials? Yeah, absolutely. This was happening all over the world and not just dial painting, but the radium craze. So all those products we talked about, you know, the chocolate, the radium tonics, um, so on and so forth. That was global as well. Um, so, yes, there is absolutely evidence of other people being hurt. You know, even since I've published the book in the UK, I've had people writing to me saying, you know, my aunt Margaret was a radium girl in York, for example, and she passed away in her 20s. From radium poisoning um, and just as I mentioned about the cleanup that had to happen in the 1990s you know all these residential communities that had been contaminated with the radiation I know in the UK we have dozens you know if not more hotspots of where for example radium was manufactured applied during the second world war you know whether it's ministry of defense sites um, or, or whatever there are these hotspots of radioactive activity, which is the legacy from this radium craze that took place in the early parts of the 20th century. You must have felt such a huge responsibility to, to get the story right. Absolutely. And, and I, think, I think it's one of those things that had I known how big the story was when I started, I'd have probably been like too intimidated to begin. Uh, and it's not until you're into it. And, and even after it's been published, to be honest, people's reactions to it have um, you know, sort of really driven home how big the story is, how important it is, you know, the, the depth of the science behind it and so on, which, you know, as someone that doesn't have a scientific background is is kind of daunting. Um, but for me, as I say, it was always about the women. And I think keeping them close to my heart and just following the through line of their personal journeys and being true to that, that's what I try to do in the book. And so, of course, I have written about the legacy. I've written about... Um, you know, what happened at the end, and I've written about the science, but the book is always, for me, about the women, and I kind of feel as long as I kept that in my mind's eye, and that was my vision for the book, that I was kind of, you know, okay to continue, if that makes sense. You know, I wasn't trying to claim to be anyone that I'm not. I was just trying to help these women have a voice. I saw a trailer for a movie. Mm. Is that movie associated with your book? No, and it's not actually, and lots of people have asked me about it, it's not actually based on the history in the sense that it doesn't tell the stories of the real Radium Girls. I think it's got a fictional character um, telling a fictional story. So it's got the same name, Radium Girls, but it's not based on the book and it's not about Grace Fryer or Catherine Donoghue. Um, it's about completely made up women. Oh, that's too bad. Actual history is, for me, is always far more compelling than fictionalized versions. Yeah, I mean, you never know. Hopefully, hopefully one day. I mean, I think in some ways, the fact that this movie is fictional, maybe it will get people interested in the history, and maybe one day the real women will get a chance to see their story, you know, on screen, because I think they really deserve it. As I say, my whole mission with the book was to make sure they were remembered. And I think if um, a film does happen that actually celebrates the real women and the real history, that would be an amazing thing to happen. Right. 
Absolutely. Uh, well, well, this has been great. Can you tell us about your website and how people can buy your book? Yeah, um, so I have a website that I built to support the book, which is theradiumgirls.com. Uh, it has click links uh, for you to buy the book if you're interested in buying the book. Um, but it's also a resource which has got frequently asked questions and a little bit more biographical detail on the women that I couldn't get into the book because I had to cut loads of words. Um, so it's a resource if you want to find out more about the women as well, theradiumgirls.com. Well, thank you for spending so much time with me. Thank you. Thank you for shining a light on their story. It's been wonderful to speak to you. Again, I have been speaking to Kate Moore. She is the author of Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. If you can hear the birds chirping in the background, uh, it is morning as I am recording this. (laughs) And my apologies, although it is certainly brightening up my day. I hope you have some birds in your near future to brighten your day as well. Please stay safe today and have a safe tomorrow. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.